how do you prove something unprovable? How do you ask a world obsessed with hard, traceable evidence to take something reality-altering on faith? How can you get scientists, military men, and garden-variety skeptics to abandon their need for facts and just take your word for it? It's funny how when it comes to matters of politics and popular culture, people will believe anything without blinking an eye at the fake news of it all. But when one person, alone with a bizarre, frightening, and painful experience, comes forward, even at the risk of their own reputation and credibility, they just don't inspire much in the way of confidence. And no, I'm not talking about a Me Too or Believe Her moment, though I guess I could be. But no, this story is about another kind of alienation altogether. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm an Earthling who believes there is intelligent life out there, as opposed to intelligent life here on Earth. Of that, I'm not quite convinced. But I'm pretty sure I'll never have my own close encounter of a third kind. I don't think I'd be much fun to abduct because I'm all too willing. I'm ready to get the hell off this rock. Plus, they'd have a hard time getting rid of me. But I think I'd make a good candidate for a basic UFO sighting because the aliens could be assured that no one would believe me if I told them about it. Oh, the person with a podcast that covers UFO and alien stuff just happened to have an alien encounter? Okay. What I'm trying to say is, aliens, your secret is safe with me. This was not the case, it turned out, when Stephen Michalak supposedly had his encounter. This guy couldn't wait to tell anyone who would listen. Before we get on board the alien spacecraft, let's all make sure to hop on over to patreon.com slash strange and unexplained for more strange content. That way, while you're on the aliens exam table, you can have all the bonus episodes downloaded for your listening pleasure. It's just five bucks a month for three bonus episodes. And for just an additional $2, you get all the bonus content plus all the regular episodes ad-free. Do it. Do it now before the aliens come and get you. Now, back to Stephen Michalak's encounter, which, unfortunately for him, happened long before podcasts were a thing. In 1967, 50-year-old Stephen Michalak, a Canadian industrial mechanic who immigrated from Poland, took a long weekend trip in May to one of his favorite spots for rock collecting at Falcon Lake, about 100 miles east of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. According to Stephen's son, Stan, Stephen found a large quartz vein there, and apparently where there's quartz and granite, you'll likely also find gold and nickel. See? You learn things every day. Stephen told Unsolved Mysteries, I love nature. I love birds, animals, and also I have interest in nature, rocks and this and that. Every weekend, in the long weekend, I usually travel, go out in the country and snooping in the rocks. Later that year, in a 40-page manuscript titled My Encounter with the UFO, Stephen would write, It was... 5.30 a.m. when I left the motel and started out on my geologic trek. I took with me a hammer, a map, a compass, paper and pencil, and a little food to see me through the day wearing a light jacket against the morning chill. 
The day was bright, sunny, not a cloud in the sky. It seemed like just another ordinary day, but events which were to take place within the next six hours were to change my entire life more than anyone could ever imagine. I will never forget May 20, 1967. Said events began with a gaggle of geese on the lake honking and flapping about, clearly disturbed by something. Michalak told Unsolved Mysteries that looking up, he saw two objects in the sky. They were, as he described them, Cigarette-like shape things with a hump in the middle, I said. What the hell is that? What the hell indeed. The objects glowed red, and while one of them remained where it was in the air, apparently only about 15 feet above Michelak's head, the other descended toward the land. He couldn't see any marks or identifiers on the large objects, nothing indicating to whom they belonged or where they came from. He assumed they were some kind of experimental craft from the U.S. whose border wasn't too far away. The craft that had been descending landed on a flat rock about 160 feet away from Michalak while the other one flew away. Michalak could now see the thing was disc-shaped. He would later write that the disc was... Changing in color, turning from red to gray-red to light gray, and then to the color of hot stainless steel with a golden glow around it. After recovering my composure and regaining my senses to some degree, I began watching the craft intently, ready to record in my mind everything that happened. He sat back and sketched the thing and made notes. Based on Michelak's sketches and notes, the Edmonton Journal would later report, quote, The objects were described as being about 35 feet long, 8 feet high, with a 3-foot protrusion on top. While they bore a surface resemblance to stainless steel, they gave off a glaring red light, end quote. After a while, with nothing happening with the craft, Michelak later recounted, I approached the craft and touched its side. It was hot to touch. It appeared to be made of a steel-like substance. There were no signs of welding or joints to be seen anywhere. The outer surface was highly polished and looked like colored glass with light reflecting off it. It formed a spectrum with a silver background as the sunlight hit the sides. The craft was so hot, in fact, that it burned the tips of the rubber gloves he was wearing when he touched it. Michalak told Unsolved Mysteries that a door opened on the side of the craft. He said, When the gate opened, there was a goody, 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 goody kind of shrieky talk, like kids in problem or something. Thinking of USA, I said, Okay, Yankee boys, seems to me you are in trouble. You got troubles, I'll help you. Remember, Google Translate didn't exist in 1967. When he didn't get a response, he offered help in Russian, Polish, and German. I guess he just had to hope these aliens had a penchant for the Caucasus. Anyway, when he got no response, Michalak approached the craft. The light coming from inside was almost blinding, and before he got too close, the craft began to rotate and then took off. 
But Michalak's son, Stan, told the podcast UFOs at LAC. As he was close to it, it began to rotate in place and lift. As it lifted off and rotated, it was emitting a jet of gas that passed him and hit him in the chest, set his shirt on fire, forced him back. As the craft continued to lift, he was basically ripping his shirt off because he was on fire. He stomped the shirt out on the ground. His undershirt, he tore that off too because it was already getting hot and singed. By the time he looked up, the craft had already begun its ascent and was gone in a matter of seconds. He looked around, stomped out whatever was left of the fire of his shirt and his undershirt. And that's when Michalak began to feel sick. He threw up several times and had spots in his vision. Later, in his written account, he wrote that at that point, his, quote, desire for prospecting had vanished, end quote. Yes, I would think so. I would imagine that this experience would pretty much put an end to literally anything you might have been doing beforehand. He wrote, As I approached the site, I felt nauseated and my head began to ache. The spot where the craft had come to rest looked as if it had been swept clean with a boom. There was no debris of any kind on the rock. No twigs, bits of stone, nothing. It had all been piled up in a six inches deep circular mound about 15 feet in diameter. As I stood there examining the spot, the pain in my head became more severe. Waves of nausea increased and I broke out in a cold sweat. I knew that something totally unnatural had happened to me and apparently it was having adverse effect on my physiology. Disoriented, sick, and in pain, Michalak knew he had to get himself home. For some reason, his compass, which presumably had been working just fine before all this Michigas started, was now all wackadoo. The needle wouldn't stop spinning, so he had to guess which way to go, although considering he'd returned to this spot many times before, I can't imagine the way was that mysterious. Despite his familiarity with the location, Michalak came to the highway on the edge of the forest about a mile from the main entrance where he'd gone in. Trying to make his way back to the entrance, he flagged down an officer of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Later, he recounted, As I staggered along the roadside, I heard a voice calling me. Turning, I saw an RCMP constable. Briefly, I gave him an account of what had happened, warning him not to come too close to me because I feared the possibility of spreading radiation. I asked about medical aid. Sorry, but I have duties to perform here, he said. I stared at him, unbelieving what I had just heard. He apparently did not believe a word I told him. Otherwise, he would have acted differently. The constable left me with my sickness and disappointment. Left there, on the side of the road, Michalak eventually managed to make his way back to his motel where he grabbed his things and waited for a Greyhound bus to take him to Winnipeg, where he asked his wife to meet him so he could get treatment for whatever was happening to him. At the Misericordia Hospital, Michalak was treated for first-degree burns on his chest, which, oddly, were a series of dots forming a square on his chest, exactly, his son Stan later said, like the holes on the side of the craft. Stan told Unsolved Mysteries, There was this sulfur, ozone, electric-burning motor stink about him. 
It was like he was carrying an aura of this smell. Wherever he walked, and he got close to you, you could smell this. Not baths, showers, wouldn't take it out. That lasted for weeks. I remember seeing him in bed constantly, tired, nauseous, headachy, not feeling well, losing a lot of weight. Doctors were baffled. No one could figure out where all these symptoms were coming from. Michalak did not have radiation poisoning, and the burns on his chest were chemical burns, not radiation burns. Although Michalak would write in his account that he was afraid of ridicule if his story got out, it was, indeed, Michalak himself that first contacted the press. He felt it was his moral obligation to let people know what happened to him. He'd been a police officer in Poland, and part of his job description was basically, if you see something, say something. He contacted the Winnipeg Tribune, and the story came out a few days later. And then, as Michalak recounted, Press investigations did not stop at my own home. Reporters went out to my friends and neighbors, asking if they thought I was a stable person, whether I drank a lot, and whether I was the type who bragged and boasted a lot. By evening, following the incident, I was totally exhausted. I could talk to people no longer. I refused to answer the telephone. I tried to break off contact with the outside world. I mean, I'm not sure what exactly he expected to have happen. You tell someone at a newspaper that you saw a UFO, you're going to be the top story for a while, my friend. Michalak was indeed the talk of the town with a frenzy of media coverage with headlines like, Man claims thing from sky. I was burned by UFO. Burned by saucer, Winnipegger claims. And... Foul smell persists. UFO cider suffers chest burn. That last headline did him dirty. Each newspaper account retold Michalak's story with pretty much the same details, including that he'd lost 12 pounds in two days and was still sick and stinky. But the newspaper frenzy was just a preview of things to come. Three days after Michalak's encounter, on May 23rd, he was visited by Corporal Davis and another officer, Constable Zacharias of the RCMP and the Royal Canadian Air Force, as well as Barry Thompson, a member of APRO, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, a civilian group that investigates UFO sightings. The officials interviewed Michalak for two hours and returned the next day for more. According to the podcast UFOs at LAC, quote, Officers Davis and Zacharias reported that he appeared to be suffering from an unknown illness and therefore unable to bring them out to the site of the incident at Falcon Lake, end quote. So Michalak drew what his son Stan said was a very impressive map. He told the LAC podcast... He did it from two perspectives. Uh, he did it from a plan view, like an overhead view, and then he did it from a sectional view to show the changes in elevation, which was typical for my dad because that was the kind of guy he was and that was the kind of skill he had. Despite Michalak's detailed instructions, however, the officers failed to locate the spot where the encounter took place. And so, failing any logical, earthly explanation for what Michalak claimed to have experienced, the officials tried to discredit him as a drunk, claiming that he likely hallucinated the event after drinking too much the day before. Now, look, 
I'm no toxicologist, but I've drinking my share of liquor in my day, and I can say with 100% certainty that I have never hallucinated either while drunk or hungover. Have I vomited? Sure. Have I pooped my pants a little? Absolutely. Have I wished I was dead? You bet. But I have never had, nor have I ever heard of someone having hallucinations brought on by alcohol. According to Michelak's son, Stan, the idea that his father had a problem with alcohol was quickly dispelled. But the damage to Michelak's credibility and reputation had already been done. Stan said that once the rumor was out there, it became the main focus. Then, at the end of June, when he was feeling better, Michelak and a friend went back out to the site at Falcon Lake where Michelak had had his encounter. They apparently had more luck than the officers, and when they found the spot, as UFO researcher and writer Chris Rutowski recounted on Unsolved Mysteries, On this barren patch of rock was a circular, roughly circular, ring of vegetation. Dead pine needles, dirt, uh, leaves, that sort of thing. The rock had been swept clean except for this ring which was surrounding this area. They also noticed that a few of the trees appeared to have dead branches, as if something had either come in and touched them or brushed by them with an intense heat or some other effects. The men also took soil samples and checked for radiation, which they claimed was alarmingly high, though later they determined there was a vein of radium running under the area. For those of you who don't know, apparently there are rocks in the Earth that just naturally emit something called radium, which is super dangerous. I only learned this when I bought my house. Apparently we have a pump that draws radium out of the air and releases it somewhere else. If we didn't have this pump or it stopped working and we didn't notice, it would be bad. Just more proof that Earth is constantly trying to get rid of us. Michalak revisited the site several times over the next year, and in June of 1968, he claimed to have found some kind of molten material, which, according to Unsolved Mysteries, upon analysis proved to be, quote, an extremely pure grade of silver that is difficult to obtain. It had been coated with pitch blend ore, which contains both uranium and radium, end quote. Though the material had been radioactive, it was safe to handle. Don't ask me. I don't know how any of this stuff works. Skeptics point to the metal as evidence that Michalak made the story up. Their argument is that if the material had been left behind by the craft, investigators would have noticed it before Michalak and his friend claimed to have found it. Regardless, in taking soil samples and removing whatever materials Michalak had initially left behind when he stumbled away from the site on May 20th, the men had contaminated the area enough that further investigations would be compromised. It was not the smartest move on Michalak's part. By the time Michalak brought official investigators back to the site, there wasn't much left that was useful to investigate or test. Also, according to researcher and writer Palmiro Campagna, who goes on record as having the world's best name ever, the amount of radium was not alarmingly high and could have easily just come from Michalak's watch, which probably had radium paint on it to make it glow in the dark. Regardless of the state of the site of the encounter, Michalak himself was still suffering from the effects of whatever it was that happened to him. He told Unsolved Mysteries, After every three months, my burns from legs and here were coming back. 
showing up again, and burning and burning and vomiting. Anything I eat, bingo, goes. The symptoms returned every three months for about a year and a half or so, and those who touched the burn mark said you could feel the damaged tissue under the skin. Chris Wartowski told the CBC News in May of 2017, the 50th anniversary of the event, that Michalak had also received a psychological evaluation which showed he was pragmatic, grounded, and not prone to lie. One of the outstanding questions in the whole thing is whether anyone else claimed to have seen these crafts in the area around the same time as Michalak. And apparently there were other eyewitnesses, but Michalak's son Stan thinks the investigators didn't do a thorough enough job tracking them down and getting statements. For example, apparently there was a fire tower near the location and there should have been a guard in the tower. Stan told the LAC podcast, Was he asleep? Chances are good that he was. There are so many things that could have been followed up and weren't. Of course, one doubts that if the guard was indeed asleep, he would admit to sleeping on the job. Stan also claims that a little girl said she saw the crafts possibly the day before his dad did. He wasn't 100% sure of the dates and had drawn a picture of them in crayon, but she apparently wasn't interviewed. It was only years later that researcher Chris Rutowski even discovered the sketch in his own investigation. Stan also wondered if anyone had bothered to get data from air traffic control or anything from anyone official. It doesn't seem like they did. The Department of National Defense and the RCMP eventually concluded that the physical damage Michelac allegedly sustained during a close encounter with an unidentified craft was real, but unexplainable. In other words, his injuries were real, but they couldn't determine where they'd come from. Other than that, they didn't have anywhere near enough evidence to make any determination on whether or not Michalak had indeed seen a UFO. Researcher and writer Chris Rutowski, for his part, argues that Michalak's experience is actually better evidence of UFO and possible alien activity than the famous Roswell case from 20 years prior. This is quite the claim, considering that in the Roswell case, actual pieces of the craft were collected by the government. But Rutowski believes that the irradiated soil around the Falcon Lake area, the origins of which no one could ever determine, and Michalak's physical injuries and symptoms make for a more believable event. Rutowski also claims that both the Canadian and U.S. governments have secret files on the event. He told the CBC News in 2017. In addition to civilian research files, plus correspondence between physicians in the United States and Canada on Mr. Michalak, we have the Mayo Clinic files because Mr. Michalak went down to the Mayo Clinic to be tested for a better understanding of what had befallen him, plus many other documents that are incidental. Overall, we have huge amounts of documents which the Roswell case certainly does not have. Michalak's son, Stan, thinks that a hoax is actually more unbelievable than assuming his father's story is real. For one thing, he argues, most people who create hoaxes end up getting found out eventually. They either crack or someone fesses up that they were in on it and know the truth. Plus, he told CBC News, I think probably one of the biggest things that I've always used to counter the skeptics is if you think it's possible to hoax something like this, then go out and give it a try. 
In fact, we'll even do it with modern technology and see if you can do it. And you can't. There is no way to physically produce this thing, this result. By that, I mean the injury to dad and the evidence that was pulled later. There's no way to do this. You have to be either a genius, which my father was not, or a scientific wizard, which he was not, or have a team of people who can help you hoax this. Dad never changed his story once. There was never a slip. He was even put under hypnosis, and while under, he recounted the entire incident exactly as he described it when he was awake. How does a person do this? You either have to be the world's greatest liar, or you have to have some incredible capabilities, which he did not have. In the absence of anything that proves positive, one has to say that's the story. If it was a hoax, Stan said, his blue-collar mechanic of a father would had to have been a genius. Chris Rutowski agrees, adding that if it is a hoax, it can be listed among the best hoaxes ever perpetrated. He told the LAC podcast, We have a witness who was judged by a psychiatrist to not fabricate stories. A person who was a good member of society holding a good job, a background in the military himself, and no reason to perpetrate such a hoax at all. He maintained until he died that this is what happened to him. He did not have a history of seeing aliens around every corner like so many contactees and abductees maintain these days in their own stories. This was a very unusual experience that happened to him, and he was as puzzled as anyone. In fact, Stan said, the family endured ridicule because of his father's story. Stan himself was bullied at school because of it. And yet, Michalak never wavered. But Stan is quick to remind people that his father never claimed to see aliens. If you asked him if aliens were real, he would have said he didn't know because he'd never seen them himself. All he saw was some kind of aircraft that was extremely unusual, had no markings, seams, rivets, or joints, but that left him with pretty serious physical injuries. Stan told the CBC News, I'm not so close-minded that I can't entertain the possibility that it's otherworldly. I can't discount that. But without specific evidence to show me that it is, I don't know. What I can tell you is that I'm an aviation fanatic, a huge aviation buff, and I am very familiar with how aviation technology has advanced in the past 50 years. And there was nothing even close to that in the works anywhere at that time. In 2019, Chris Rutowski and Stan Michalak published When They Appeared, Falcon Lake 1967, The Inside Story of a Close Encounter, a book about Stan's father's experience. But not everyone is convinced. In an entertainingly written blog post titled Stefan Michalak's Story, No Aliens Required, Aaron Sakalich, associate professor of civil, environmental, and architectural engineering and writer of the Iron Skeptic blog, lays out his case against Michalak. Though some of Sakalich's claims contradict Michalak's official story, he says he read the initial police report made by the RCMP officer who'd been flagged down by Michalak on the highway. According to Sakalich, quote, the officer noted that although he couldn't smell alcohol on Michalak, he looked rather drunk with bloodshot eyes. He also refused to answer direct questions coherently. He showed the Mountie his burned hat, but when the officer asked him why his head was not burned, he refused to answer. 
He also refused to allow the officer to look at his shirt, which the Mountie had noted was burned. Michalak appeared to have, in the words of the police report, had taken a black substance, possibly wood ashes, and rubbed it on his chest, end quote. I would argue that someone who had just had the experience Michalak claimed to have had might be extremely disoriented and incoherent. Also, repeated vomiting can cause one's eyes to be bloodshot. Sakalich also claims the officer asked Michalak why his fingers weren't burnt if the tips of his gloves had burned off, and Michalak wouldn't answer him. It's possible, of course, he pulled his hand away fast enough to not have his skin burned, but not fast enough for the gloves not to burn. Also, maybe he wasn't refusing to answer so much as he was incapable of answering because he did not know the answers. Sakalich also says the police report notes that Michalak sketched the crafts while standing there by the side of the road in front of the officer. Why didn't he just pull out the drawing he said he'd made at the site? Again, it's not impossible to think that Michalak was not in his right mind after the encounter he'd said he'd had. How many times have you forgotten you've done something after you've done it, without also having an alien encounter? See what I'm saying? Sakalich also claims that once back at the motel, Michalak called a newspaper asking for a ride to Winnipeg, but no publicity. Who knows where he got this information? As far as I know, Michalak never said this happened. Also, why would anyone call a newspaper for a ride? Additionally, Sakalich says that when investigators first went out to examine the site, Michalak went with them and claimed not to be able to find it, which is, again, not Michalak's version of events. In Michalak's version, at least according to his son, he drew them two very detailed maps, but said he was too ill to go himself. I don't know, maybe the official RCMP report says differently? Sakalich says that despite Michalak's claim that he didn't drink the night before the incident, a, quote, quick check with the local bartender says otherwise. According to that guy, Michalak had had at least five beers that night. Okay, I mean, A, is there only one bar? Like, if he did drink, how would they even know which bar to find the bartender that served him? And two, five beers over how long a period of time? Did he eat? What was his tolerance? And D, again, I have yet to hear of anyone hallucinating from drinking beer. Sakalich seems more ready to believe this nameless bartender than he is to believe Michalak. Although, to be fair, he drank five beers is a more believable story than I saw two UFOs and was burned by one. Or, as Sakalich puts it, quote, He's making the claim that a guy drank some beer. I don't need a full background check to believe he might be telling the truth. In fact, compared to the guy claiming he was set on fire by space people, he seems a veritable font of veracity, end quote. But Sakalich also makes the point that if Michalak had had some drinks the night before, there really wouldn't be any harm in admitting to it. It wouldn't actually discredit him that much. So why he would have remained steadfast that he didn't drink the night before is an interesting question. Then again, maybe he realized that if he went back on one detail, it might unravel the whole story? As for the small amount of radium apparently found on Michalak at some point in the investigation, 
Sackalich thinks it's likely the person held the Geiger counter too close to Michalak's glow-in-the-dark watch, or that Michalak exposed himself to a small amount of radium on purpose. And then, in my favorite passage in the piece, he says this, quote, Sure, it's possible that he was radioactive because of his spaceship encounter, but I ask you, which is more likely? Cunning man concocts strange tale? Doofus skews radiation test results? Or spacemen travel a gazillion miles through space just to blow dry a geologist? End quote. Sakalich then addressed the metals supposedly found in the rock a year after the encounter. According to Sakalich, they were materials that could be found in any hardware store and that Michalak was very cagey about letting anyone examine them closely, which is not a claim I saw in the other accounts. But maybe Sakalich dug deeper than I did. Also, he says, quote, It turns out the guy is a metal worker, you say? Well, golly, surely he wouldn't know how to work with metals and produce fake samples, end quote. The only thing Sacklich says is unexplainable are the burns on Michalak's chest. However, he says, quote, Once again, there's nothing extraterrestrial about that. The burns on his stomach prove only that he was burned. It proves nothing about the existence of spacemen. Give me a potato masher and a campfire and I can duplicate what happened to him. I mean, it would help if you got me liquored up or if I had some deeply profound reason to do so, but you get the idea. End quote. Sakalich believes that Michalak did this whole thing for the attention and media fame, which he definitely got. He also suggests that perhaps he cooked up the alien story as a way to keep other prospectors away from an area with potentially valuable rocks. Although it seems to me that stories of alien craft encounters would have the opposite effect. But what do I know? However, there is at least one official report that is less sure that Michalak made the whole thing up. According to a U.S. government-sponsored UFO project called the Condon Report, quote, Michalak's experience was described as unknown, implying that there was no explanation for his experience. Its concluding remarks were impressive. If the case were physically real, it would show the existence of alien flying vehicles in our environment. End quote. Apparently, though, according to the Condon Report, there are some inconsistencies in Michalak's story, including the lack of conclusive findings on soil samples and an allegation that Michalak at one point claimed to have stuck his head inside the craft and saw a maze of tunnels, but then in later recountings said he didn't get close enough to put his head inside the craft as well as some other technical things that the report claims were impossible. However, as I said, the report doesn't flat-out deny the story or categorize it as a hoax. It just lists it as unknown. And who am I to tell the U.S. government how to do their job? Ha ha ha. But seriously, I'm willing to at least say that we can't really know what happened that day to Stephen Michalak out there in the woods in Canada. We know enough to know that something happened to him out there, and it was something big enough to cause him to lay his reputation and his credibility on the line. Maybe that something was as basic and predictable as human greed. But just maybe it was something worth more than gold or precious stones to Michalak. Maybe it was something that transcended acquisitional gain. But as is so often the case, strangers, 
we will never know. That is between Stephen and whoever, or whatever, was flying that craft. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. Has anyone ever told you you have a fiery personality? You better be careful around open flames. Spontaneous human combustion. And if you want even more Strange and Unexplained, head on over to our Patreon, where you get three bonus episodes a month for just five bucks. And for $7, you get all that plus all the regular episodes ad-free. Patreon.com slash Strange and Unexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Ryan Garcia, and Marquise Vilson. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head on over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review in a quick sentence really helps. If you don't like the show, you can leave a scathing review. The name of the podcast is Happy Today with Lady Maga, USA. 